All right, let's turn uh, to Revelation chapter 7 this morning. Now, somebody asked, um, so we just sort of mentioned the, uh, the warehouse thing and the air conditioning. They said, how can we donate? Um, so you can donate through any of our tithing boxes located around the building. We don't pass a plate here, so uh, they're located around the building. Or you can, go, you can donate online if you go to our, our website and you can go to our, there's a giving tab, you just tap, uh, hit that button and it'll give you an option to make a donation towards uh, the warehouse air conditioning. Okay, Revelation chapter 7, I should probably stay, say that if you need to borrow a Bible, if you'll raise your hand, we can bring one around to you. We believe strongly, not only in the teaching of God's Word here, but we want you to be able to see God's Word as it is open in front of you so you can follow along with us. We are in, as uh, we continue here in the book of Revelation, we're in the third overall section of the book of Revelation. And we transitioned back at the beginning of chapter 4 when John writes after these things. After what things? Well, after the things naturally written about in chapter 2 and 3, which is a picture of the entirety of church history. So the church age. And John is now in heaven. Uh, He's there with the church. He sees this innumerable company gathered together, worshiping around the throne. And last week, we saw how Jesus, this lamb who was slain, takes a seven-sealed scroll out of the hand of his father, who was seated upon the throne, and Jesus begins to open these seals one at a time. It's God's last will and testament of the affairs of the universe. And with the opening of each of these seals, there is some kind of cataclysmic judgment that is released upon a sin-loving, Christ-rejecting world. This is the first of three waves of seven judgments each that we see in the book of Revelation. We have the seal judgments. Next week, we'll start to look at the trumpet judgments. And then finally, we'll see the bowl judgment. So if you weren't here last week, or if you haven't been tracking along with us, I always like to do this little blurb right here. You can go to our YouTube channel, or you can go directly to our website, ccubacity.com, and you can find all of our previous studies. In fact, while you're at our YouTube channel, go ahead and subscribe. That way, we can notify you anytime uh, we upload new Bible teaching content. Now, in chapter 6, and we kind of talked about this in previous studies, John, we said, is using what we'll call a wide-angle lens. He's providing an overview of the entire final seven-year period of human history known as the Great Tribulation. But this morning, John's going to swap out that that wide-angle lens for a zoom lens, and he's going to focus in on a couple of specific details and a couple of characters that we see during the Great Tribulation. So this morning we have the 144,000 and a mysterious multitude. So we're going to start reading in chapter 7, verse 1. John writes, after these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Now, a lot of times critics of the Bible will come to a passage like this and they'll point to it and they'll say, see, the Bible speaks of the four corners of the earth, but the earth isn't flat. It's round. Don't those idiots know anything? Meanwhile, those same people will speak of a sunrise and a sunset. I would just say, don't those fools know the sun doesn't move? The earth is what moves. Why don't they call it an earth rise or an earth set? That would be more scientifically accurate. This is probably what we would think of as a colloquialism. A colloquialism is 
a character, or is characteristic of familiar and informal conversation. So here are some examples of famous colloquialisms. Hard to swallow. That means difficult to believe. Knee-jerk reaction. That, res that refers to a quick or automatic response. Up for grabs. That means available to anyone. Kick the bucket. We all know that's not a literal expression, right? It means to die. Head over heels. How would that work out physically, right? It just means in love. Or elbow grease. That means hard work. The idea of the four corners of the earth is simply an ancient way of saying the four points of the compass. <clears throat> There's also a possibility, and I think this is interesting, that the four winds of the earth, you'll see that phrase in verse 1, that it's a reference back to the four horsemen that we saw last week in chapter 6. Now, all the way back in the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter 6, there's a, there's a passage that pictures four chariots going out to all the earth. And those four chariots in Zechariah chapter 6 are the same colors as the horses that we read about in Revelation chapter 6. And we're told in that passage that those four chariots, follow me on this, are four spirits of heaven who go out from their station before the Lord of all the earth. The word for spirits in that passage in Hebrew is ruah, which can also be translated wind. So these passages could all be describing the same thing. G. Coleman Luck writes, In the usual scriptural symbolism, red speaks of war, black speaks of famine and death, white of victory, and grizzled of pestilence. Then John says in verse 2, I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, until... We have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, this verse is important because here's one of the ways that we know what we're, read, what we're about to read in chapter 7 is actually taking place before the judgments that we read about last week in chapter 6. The instruction from this angel is essentially don't start any of those judgments until we seal the servants of God on their foreheads. That's what verse 3 means. Now, interestingly, again, you see a, a similar picture in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel. Before the Lord pours out judgment specifically upon Jerusalem, he says to an angel, go through the midst of the city and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. Now, there's lots we can say about this. The idea of placing a seal upon someone or something in ancient times denoted ownership or authority. Adam Clark writes, This is in allusion to the ancient everywhere used custom of setting marks on servants and slaves to distinguish them from others. It was also common for the worshipers of particular idols to have their idols mark on their foreheads or arms. Now, we don't know exactly what this seal is that's upon the 144,000, but we do know from Revelation chapter 14, which we'll reference several times this morning, that it in some way contains the name of God. 
Now, one idea that I like, and we can't say this definitively, but I think it's really cool, uh, Nicholas Thomas Wright, sometimes called N.T. Wright, he says, there's a prophetic significance in the Hebrew word for Mark. It's the Hebrew letter tall, which at the time was written as a cross. Without being superstitious, we can rejoice in this anticipation of salvation through the death of Christ on the cross. So it's just kind of interesting to imagine this 144,000 sealed with a cross, potentially, during the Great Tribulation. Now, of course, it's also interesting to compare this seal that's placed on the servants of God with the so-called mark of the beast that is placed on those who follow the Antichrist. More on that when we get to Revelation chapter 11, or Revelation chapter 13. But in that, I will say this, once again, you know, we, we read about these being sealed by God, and then you get to Revelation chapter 13, and the Antichrist placing his mark upon his followers. You see, Satan's not really original, right? He's just a good copy artist. He's a counterfeiter. Now, here's what's interesting. Did you know that you and I, as believers, have similarly been sealed? Okay, here's several verses I would mention. Ephesians 1.13 says, in him you trusted after you heard the gospel of your salvation, in whom, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. 2 Corinthians 1.21 says, God has sealed us and given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are God's property. He owns us. We belong to him. He purchased us with his blood. And now the glorious good news is no one can snatch us out of his hands. We belong to him and we are protected by him. But who are these servants of God that we read about in Revelation chapter 7? In a nutshell, the 144,000 are, <clears throat> excuse me, Jewish people. 12,000 from 12 of the specific tribes of Israel who are sealed or protected by God to serve during and survive through the Great Tribulation. Now, how do we know that? Okay, again, here in chapter 7, we see them before any harm is done to the earth, the sea, or the trees until they have been sealed by God in their foreheads. But we see them again in chapter 14, as the Lamb is standing on Mount Zion, which happens at the end of the Great Tribulation, and we read, with him, 144,000 having his Father's name written on their foreheads. A couple of other things chapter 14 tells us about this 144,000. Verse 4 says, These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes, these were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb, and in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So they're human beings, right? These aren't the four living creatures or the angels that we've read about. They're humans, they're devoted, they're faithful, they're sexually pure servants of God. Now back in chapter 7, verse 4, John writes, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of Israel, of the all the tribes of the children of Israel who were sealed. So right here, they're called of the children of Israel. 
There have been numerous suggestions over the years with regard to who this group is. Now, here's some of the more famous suggestions. The Jehovah's Witnesses once said they were the 144,000 until their group grew beyond 144,000. And of course, then they conveniently changed that. And now they say that the 144,000 are only a select group of Jehovah's Witnesses who are going to go to heaven. The Mormon church claims that the 144,000 relates to, quote, the high priests who are ordained under the holy order of God. Ellen G. White and the Seventh-day Adventists claim to be the 144,000. Ted Armstrong and the Worldwide Church of God, sometimes referred to as Armstrongism, they claim to be the 144,000. Within Islam, the 144,000 is alleged to have been the total number of prophets in Islam. One other very popular suggestion is that the 144,000 is the church. And there are some people, not everyone, but there are some people who believe that the church will go through the Great Tribulation, they will point to this passage and they'll say, look, right there, Revelation chapter 7, we see the church before the Great Tribulation, and then in chapter 14, as we've already discussed, we see the church after the Great Tribulation. Okay, the main problem that I have with that thought process is that nowhere in Scripture are we taught that the church is Israel. Um, In fact, that idea doesn't really come onto the scene until about 160 AD. It's what we call replacement theology. And the idea is that when you get to the New Testament, anytime you read about Israel, those promises are actually made and applied to the church. Now, even if that were true, which it's not, but even if that were true, it's hard to imagine the entire church surviving through the entire seven-year period of Great Tribulation. Because that's what we have, right? You have 144,000 before the Great Tribulation in chapter 7. And then you have the the same 144,000 after the Great Tribulation in chapter 14. Let's imagine that I just handed you this passage. And and let's just say you had no uh, frame of reference. Like you didn't know we were studying through the book of Revelation. And I just handed you this passage and I said, read this. Or, Or let's imagine that. I enlisted the help of our family scholar, Kaysen, and I said, Kaysen, just read this passage and tell me what it means, okay? If we read this, let's look and see what this means. We'll start reading together in verse 4. John writes, And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Verse 5, Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Now, if I handed you that, and I said, read it, and I said, what does that mean? You'd probably say, I hope you would say, Kevin, it sounds like of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Now, I'm not going to take the time to read through them all, but do you see what I'm talking about? 
Like if we just read this and ask, what does it say? And then what does it mean? The clear meaning of the text becomes quite simple. To assign any other meaning, you have to invent meaning for all these different groups. We've said this before. This is such a good rule of thumb to keep in mind when it comes to studying the Bible. If the literal sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, lest you come up with nonsense. (laughs) We've said this before, too, from the very beginning of our study through the book of Revelation, that even though the book of Revelation often uses symbols, which it does, not everything in the book is symbolic. And one of the great things about the book of Revelation is that typically whenever John is speaking in signs or symbols, he'll tell us. But this isn't a passage where John says, I saw something like 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. He doesn't say, I saw a great sign, 144,000. John says, I saw 144,000 people, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, specifically sealed before the Great Tribulation. He doesn't call them the church. He doesn't call them saints. David Guzik writes, they are called the children of Israel, and even their tribal affiliation is specific. He adds, there is absolutely no reason to regard their tribal affiliation as symbolic, not literal. Now, Revelation 14, verse 4 tells us that they were redeemed from among men being first fruits to the God or to God and to the Lamb. Now what does that mean? Okay, well, without diverting into an entirely separate Bible study, quickly, Romans chapter 11, Paul says, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery or this hidden truth. So Paul's about to tell us something that God desires we should understand. He says, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and then all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, when I take away their sins. Again, I'm just going to read to you a portion from David Guzik's commentary on this. The way I feel about this is when somebody does the homework, No point in reinventing the wheel, right? I'm just going to read to you this. He says, God's plan of the ages does not set its attention on everyone equally throughout the ages. That in and of itself is a Bible study. He says, a time is coming when God will once again turn the attention of his plan specifically on Israel. These verses state clearly that God is not finished with Israel as a nation or a distinct ethnic group. This one passage refutes those who insist that God is done with Israel and that the church is the new Israel and inherits every promise ever made to a national and ethnic Israel. This does not mean there will be a time when every last person of Jewish descent will be saved. Instead, this is a time when Israel as a whole will be saved and when the nation as a whole, specifically its leadership, embraces Jesus as Messiah. The Bible indicates this is a necessary condition for the return of Jesus Christ. Jesus will not return again until God turns the focus of his saving mercies on Israel and Israel responds to God through Jesus Christ. What a day that'll be. 
Chuck Smith writes, one day the Jews will realize their blindness and folly. They'll accept Jesus Christ and the glorious national restoration of these people will bring in the kingdom age. And so here's what it seems is happening. The 144,000 that we're reading of this morning, they are the first wave of an entire harvest of Jewish people who are going to be saved by Jesus during the Great Tribulation. When God is done focusing on the Gentiles, and these 144,000 are the first fruits of all Israel being saved. Again, it's kind of a Bible study unto itself. Uh, We'll talk, I guess, about it more on Wednesday night at Deeper Revelation. Shameless plug, come out and join us for that. Now, let's talk for just a moment about the specific tribal designations listed here. Many people, hang on, many people like to point to the different tribal uh, affiliations listed here, and they try to assign significance. Uh, For instance, people will say that because the tribe of Dan is not listed here, the Antichrist will come from the tribe of Dan. Uh, I'm not certain that any of those ideas amount to anything more than speculation. One of the reasons is because people will often point at this and they'll say, well, it's not a regular listing of the tribes of Israel. And we just need to ask the question, well, what is a regular listing? of the tribes of Israel. Did you know that in the Bible, there are over 20 different variations of the way the tribes of Israel are listed? And it's also interesting to note, too, that in the book of Ezekiel, when we read about a millennial listing of the tribes of Israel, the very first tribe listed is who? Dan. Okay, so you can't necessarily go, well, Dan's missing from here, and this means that. Uh, So when it comes to Studying the Bible, again, here's another good rule of thumb. When you come up to something you don't know, you have to start by asking the question, well, what do we know? And here's what we know from Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 14. These are 144,000 ethnically Jewish people, 12,000 from 12 of the specific tribes who are in some way first fruits to God and especially sealed by God to serve during and survive through the Great Tribulation. My old pastor used to describe them this way, and I love this expression. He said, imagine 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams evangelizing during the final seven-year period of human history. I think that's a great way to view the 144,000. I mean, you have to imagine that when national Israel finally gets saved and they look on him whom they've pierced, and they realize there's been thousands of years of the rejection of their Messiah, imagine how fired up they're going to be to finally know they have met Jesus as their Messiah, and they are sealed, protected, they're ministering during the Great Tribulation. It's very exciting. Uh, That leads us to the second group of people that we read about in Revelation chapter 7. In verse 9, John writes this, After these things, I looked, sorry, forgive me, I'm like everybody struggling with allergies. After these things, I looked, either that or it was all the bacon I ate this morning. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, 
Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Verse 11, all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces. <coughs> Excuse me. Before the throne, I'm t- this wears you out, guys. You know, just got to throw a lot into this. Uh, before the throne and worship God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Kind of the way Brenton was praying at the end of our worship this morning. So in a very similar way to chapters 4 and 5, we see some of the same inhabitants of heaven, the angels, the elders, the four living creatures. Now, this is funny to me. In verse 13, John writes, One of the elders said to me, Who are these? arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? You got to love John's response. He's like, "Uh, well, you know. (laughs) That's my loose paraphrase, right? Now, you see a very similar thing in Ezekiel chapter 37, the, the, the famous dry bones passage. When Ezekiel is taken by the Spirit, he says, the hand of the Lord came upon me, brought me in the Spirit, and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones, and he caused me to pass by them all around, and he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel answered, "Uh, you know. (laughs) I just think that's great. I just think it's funny. Now, the, the question, I would say, isn't that important. The answer is what's important. John writes, so he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. The tense in the original language is in the present tense. These are the ones coming out of the Great Tribulation. And so it seems to be a reference to something that is happening presently or ongoingly. These are the ones who are coming out of the Great Tribulation. One of the questions that was asked last week on the the heels of our study of chapter 6, where we read about the souls of the martyrs crying out from underneath the altar in heaven where they say, how long, O Lord, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The question was, are those people in chapter 6, are those people who get saved during the Great Tribulation, or is that a reference to people who have been martyred down through the ages for their faith in Jesus Christ? I personally believe that what we read about in chapter 6, the souls of the martyrs, underneath the altar in heaven, are people who have been saved down through the ages. And then when you come to chapter 7, what we read about is people specifically coming out of the Great Tribulation. And because this group is mentioned right on the heels of the 144,000, many people believe, and we can't say this definitively, but it's possible, many people believe that this multitude mentioned here is directly connected to the ministry of the 144,000 who are serving and proclaiming the gospel during the Great Tribulation, and now these are the ones who are being saved as the result of their ministry. Notice what they're doing in verse 15. We read, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. I'm just going to take this moment to um, wax devotional for a moment. I think that there are many Christians who may be, may experience something of a rude awakening when we get to heaven. Say, Kevin, what do you mean? 
My observation is there's a lot of church-going Christians who seem to have absolutely no appetite to engage in worship. You know, look, any time in Scripture that the curtain is peeled back in the Bible and we get a glimpse into heaven, we've talked about this, what is the activity of heaven? It's worship. I mean, it is passionate, just on fire, fired up, these proclamations of the holiness of God. Meanwhile, you have Christians. You have Christians say things like, well, you know, I'm a believer, but I don't really get along with other believers. Dude, you're going to struggle in heaven right? You're going to be surrounded by an innumerable company of people, and you're like, I don't really get along with them, right? And look, the reality is when we talk about things like prayer and studying the Bible, serving, look, we, we read right here that this group who is coming out of the Great Tribulation, what are they doing in heaven? They're serving. I think there's a lot of Christians who think, oh, Goodness gracious, Kevin's talking about serving again from the pulpit. The church must need a lot of volunteers. Well, that's true, okay? But, but I would say this, follow me on this. In the same way that the months we spent in the womb, that was necessary and developmental, but we didn't stay there, right? It prepared us for our existence outside the womb here on planet Earth. Life right now is like that. It is necessary and developmental, but the purpose of it is to prepare us for life off the Earth for our existence in heaven. So guys, listen, if you're not cultivating an appetite for worship now, you need to because that's what we're doing when we go there. If you're not cultivating an attitude of fellowship Now you need to, because that's what we're going to do when we go there. If you're not learning how to serve now, you need to, because that's what we're going to do for all of eternity. (laughs) Jesus just must need volunteers in heaven, right? (laughs) No, it's about who we are. Jesus is a servant. We're called to be Christ-like, so it only makes sense that he would want us to serve. Jesus prayed. Christians say, well, I don't really know how to pray. Learn! Guys, look, things like prayer, fellowship, studying the Bible, service. I I could even talk about how financial giving, those things are the norm for the Christian life. So if you're not doing those things, listen, at some point, don't we ask the question, are you a Christian? Because if you say, I don't want to pray, I don't want to fellowship, I don't want to serve, I don't want to give, I don't want to worship, well, what is this all about to you then? This is about learning to be a citizen of heaven now for when we go there. That's what this is all about. And of course, during this time, telling other people about Jesus and how they too can be born again and become a citizen of heaven. But those things are normal for the Christian guys. We need to be learning and growing in those areas of our lives. Okay, now we come back to our regularly scheduled Bible study this morning. In verse 15, John concludes, I'm at the bottom of page 9, Jeremy. In verse 15, John concludes, 
And he who sat on the throne will dwell among them. Um, This, by the way, has always always been God's desire. God desires to be with us, right? Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's kind of a snapshot of what we'll see in chapter 21, where John says, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God will be with them. Guys, God wants to be with us. It's what he desires. It's what he created us for. In verse 16, John says, They shall neither hunger anymore, nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. I mean, this, again, it's a preview of what we see later in chapter 21. But I love the very next phrase, because the lamb. Because the lamb. Right? That's the context. We won't hunger anymore, not because there's no hunger, but because of Jesus. We won't thirst anymore, not because there's no thirst, but because of Jesus. Jesus is what makes heaven heaven. In fact, listen, if there was no hunger, no thirst, the sun not striking us, no more crying, no more sorrow, no more pain, right? If there were none of those things, but Jesus wasn't there, it wouldn't be heaven. What makes heaven heaven is the presence of Jesus. And we get to know him now. We get to fellowship with him now. And and even though we will go through hardship in this life here and now, knowing Jesus and, and like in heaven, having Jesus at the center of our lives and everything revolving around him, the lamb who was slain, do you realize how that at least minimizes the struggle of things like hunger and thirst and pain and sorrow? Because we know Jesus. We talked about this this morning in our men's small group, that the secret to the Christian life, right? In the book of Hebrews, the writer says, run with endurance the race that is set before you, doing what? Looking unto Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus. Like the old hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth, what? will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's true. Guys, we need to be focused on Jesus. This one who, verse 17 says, will shepherd us and lead us to living waters, and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. This good shepherd, the lamb who was slain for our sins before the foundation of the world, who will be in our midst, and lead us to the living fountains of water. Hallelujah. Amen, right? You looking forward to heaven? Man, I am too. Well, hopefully, he'll come back before next Sunday. But if he doesn't, go ahead and read Revelation chapter 8. We're going to study through all of chapter 8 next Sunday morning as we begin to look at the beginning of the trumpet judgments. Brenton's going to come up and um, close us out this morning with a little bit more worship. I like having this time at the end of our corporate service to just allow the Holy Spirit a moment to kind of massage these things into our hearts. 
And I'm just going to ask, as we've done on several different occasions, that during this time, we be, we be very mindful of what this time is for. It's not time to start talking. Um, if you need to have a conversation, I get it. Just let's take it out into the, the hall. Let's, let's recognize that the Holy Spirit may want to draw people to Jesus right now. Okay, and let, let's, let's give him time to do that. So if you're here this morning, you've never met Jesus, as we've been talking about these things, you felt this nudge, this... This, this tugging at your heart, like, let me encourage you to find me or one of our prayer partners. We would love to pray with you after the service today. And even if you're, you're here and you're already born again, but you just have a specific prayer need, you want someone to intercede for you this morning, again, come find one of us. We would love to pray with you. God, we love you so much. Your word excites our hearts because in it we see truth. In this world that we live in that is sort of desperately always on this quest to find the answer to what is the truth, we know that you're the truth, you're the way, you're the life, and that you desire to be with us. God, we thank you that we thank you that you've chosen to make your home in temples, not made with hands, but in temples of human flesh. Forgive us of our sins this morning. Just want to pray, Jesus, Holy Spirit, that you would draw people to Jesus this morning, that people would get saved today. Their names would be written in the book of life. We love you so much, and we just want to serve you. We want to be changed more and more into your image and likeness. So convict our hearts of the things you want to change. Carve away the carnality from our ears and our thoughts and our eyes and our lips and our desires and just purify us in the refining presence of your fire. We love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.